All right, so yeah, so we've been uh, going through our What Gift Will You Bring series. It's been a lot of fun looking uh, more in depth at all of the different individuals and characters that take place in the Christmas story. So um, just to recap, uh, so we started with Mary, right? Mary gave the gift of her yes to God. She responded to the angel of the Lord and she said, uh, scripture tells us that she said, may it happen unto me. Uh, just as you said, I wonder what would have happened if she hadn't said that. Like, I, I really kind of curiously just wonder if God would have been like, well, it's going to happen anyway. Or like, if he, <laughs> but like, I don't know. I think it's important that the Bible recorded her consent. The Bible recorded that she was a willing participant um, in that. And so for what that is, um, but she put everything in her life on the line, right? She like, lady, she put her body on the line. Amen. Right. Like she gave her body right, for that and all that that was. She gave her reputation. She gave her future. She gave her hope. She gave her dreams. She gave everything. And she said, okay, God, use this as a part of your story. Next, we explored Joseph, um, who becomes this, like, unassuming background figure of all of our little nativity scenes, right? But in that, like, his presence, as quiet as it is, is just this standing tower of faith and trust, right? Faith in God trust in Mary. I mean, even as much as like Mary knew, right? Mary knew that there was no scandal involved. At best, Joseph was 99.9999% confident, right? Like, you know, and as we pointed out in, in different times, you know, the first time Jesus made a mannerism or looked a little different than him, did he go, uh, really? Like, mate? like, you know, like did doubt creep in all throughout his time as being Jesus's stepdad? Was there possibilities and opportunities for him to doubt and go, nope, nope, nope. I'm going to believe the story. I'm going to believe the truth. And what was his reward? He kind of just fades away in the story. Like, it, it's kind of crazy. Is this, this like strong tower of faith, the strong tower of trust eventually just fades away. But we know that through the integrity that we see in Jesus, that wasn't just because Jesus hovered over the earth for six, you know, six inches over the earth because I'm God. Like he had a dad raise him. Amen. He had an earthly father that instilled in him his identity, like that, which is a role of the man, your identity. And he, he had provision through his dad and he had protection through his earthly dad and that God partnered with his earthly dad to raise the man, God here on earth. And so I love the, the Joseph um, character. And I love the idea of like, how hard is it to co-parent with the creator of the universe? Like, stepdads out there or things like that. Like, I mean, you already are dealing with challenges of having, you know, that, that there's tension there, right? There's tension as a stepdad and then like step it up. It's also creator of the universe. Like if you disagree with the parenting styles, how does that conversation go? Right? Like, but then we look at the shepherds, right? And the shepherds show up at the manger. And I really love the fact that, that pastor David pointed out that the shepherds were not commanded to go. They just went on their own to check it out. Right. And I love that God, like as as God himself and dad, the real dad in this situation, he announces the birth of his kid. Like he's so proud. He shows up in a field and says, go tell him that he's here. Go tell him that he's born. And he does it to just some regular guys out in the field. And in that, like he's partnering with common man. Right. He could have announced it in courts of royal palaces, but he didn't. He he acknowledged it amongst shepherds. I think prophetically, knowing that his son was to be the great shepherd, he went and started the story with them. And so, you know, their presence 
at the manger, their presence of showing up, you know, even in those moments, you got Joseph walking around going, I know she says, I know what she says, but you know, he's picking up stuff and hurting, whatever. He's like, I know what she says. And Mary, Mary's over there going, I have a kid. I have a kid. What do I do with a kid? Like, I don't know. And then you have these dudes just show up and go, Hey, totally incredible, miraculous things happen. Like the encouragement that that must've brought the remembrance of like the story is bigger and we're getting to be a part of it. Like, that's just insane. And so I love how all of these different gifts added up are just things that we can do in our lives, right? We can give God our yes. We can be just standing pillars of faith and trust around other people that sometimes don't even have to say anything, but just stand in the background knowing what we believe. And we can show up with our presence and our encouragement. And even they later go on to tell everybody around, we show up with our testimony, right? We show up with this is what God has done in my life, encouraging other people. So this week, you haven't figured it out yet. I get to talk about those crazy dudes wearing weird clothes off to the side, right? So we're going to be talking about the Magi as soon as I find it in my notes. Yeah. So um, I always like the song, We Three Kings. I always used to, We Three Kings of Oriental, what we bring is really bizarre. And my mom would yell at me every time. She's like, those aren't the words. So that is strictly for my mother who's going to watch this later. Um, but yeah, so the, the three kings, the wise men, the, the magi. And there are so many questions that stand around who these guys are. Where did they come from? When did they get there? Why is their inclusion even in the story? Um, one of my favorite things about scripture is what God chooses to encapsulate throughout time and his story and what he didn't put in there, right? Because even though the Bible seems pretty thick, there's a lot of white space in my Bible. I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of white space in my Bible. There's a lot of life that happens in the white spaces of our scriptures. And so it's very important what he tells us in his word and what he doesn't tell. And there's a lot of things we can glean. I think there are things we can glean from the people about what, how we should live our lives. But I also think that there are things that we can learn about who God is and how we respond to him. So we're going to pick up the story. In case you didn't know, the story of the Magi is actually found in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn there with me. All right, so this picks up right after Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, um, which is basically kind of told from the Joseph perspective. So all the things that are, that are Mary's version of the story, her birth story, those are found in Luke. You get the shepherds in Luke. You get, uh, if you're familiar, Elizabeth and Zacharias in Luke. Um, but Matthew is where you get the Magi. All right, so I'm going to start in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Everyone say, after Jesus was born. Cool. In the days of the King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. All right, I'm going to stop right there. I got questions already about these guys. Who are these dudes? Where are they from? Okay. So the term that's used here, many translations use the term wise men. That's what our most common translations are now. Is the term magi or magi. Um, it is actually uh, a phrase that, to basically mean skilled individuals that look at celestial signs, prophecies, various um, mystical arts and practices like that. Um, if you're familiar with other like historical figures like Nostradamus, has anybody ever heard of Nostradamus? He would have been considered a magi, magi um, from a different part of the world, but that same idea. So this practice was very common in the area of Persia, 
uh, which is modern day Iran. So, uh, Lisa, if you'll put up the first map. See, we're teaching. All right, so, so this is Africa, Europe. I have a pointer. All right, China, Russia. Okay, so we're gonna zoom in right here. This is the area we're looking at. So next uh, map for me. There we go, so we zoomed in. All right, this little nugget of a, of a country here, that is Israel. It's actually roughly like from north to south, it's about the size of Georgia, just in case you were wondering. Um, uh, about 300 miles, 310 miles, give or take, from point to point, depending on the borderlands. Then we have Jordan, Iraq, and Iran. So Persia at this time is basically going to be um, hanging over from about 500 BC, the former P Persian lands, and the, the kingdom of Persia extended all the way through Turkey up here to um, East Asia, excuse me, West Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, but predominantly here in Iran and just some of the borders here of Iraq. Coming over here to Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and then further down to Saudi Arabia, that's gonna be um, Arabia, okay? So most scholars agree that these guys are gonna be coming from Persia. So a couple reasons that we believe that. There's an old school Greek historian named Herodotus. He used the term to describe a hereditary, so passed down generationally, group of priests who served the royal households in ancient Babylon and later in Persia. So also a history lesson, there were these people called the Assyrians. Go back to that map for me, please. The Assyrians, they owned all this, mostly up here. Then the Babylonians came in and they made it bigger. And then the Persians came in and kicked all their butts and made it really, really big until Rome came in and pushed back against it. So there is like a thousand year history for you right there. All right, just remember your ABPs if you wanna know biblically, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. There you go, ABP. All right, so. Um, so we're talking about this priestly kingdom that's somewhere here in the Persian area. And um, they practiced this. Like I said, they were um, actually, this is kind of cool. They are mentioned in the Old Testament, the Magi. So they are mentioned in the book of Daniel. If you're familiar with Daniel and his story, um, he gets in the uh, Babylonian kingdom at first. And he works with a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody? Yeah. Veggie tail people, right? Okay. All right. So um, he, so the Magi, these wise men that came in and were supposed to be able to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, couldn't do it. Daniel comes in because of his gifts from the Lord, comes and prophesies, tells him what's going on. And he's actually put in charge, what scripture tells us, of the wise men, the Magi, that priestly order. Then eventually, like I said, Persia comes in, kicks Babylon's butts. They get a king later on named King Darius. So Darius the Great is Persian. He also has an interaction with Daniel. Daniel, again, showing up with his gift from the Lord, prophesies over King Darius and is put in charge again over the Magi here in Persia. So what's really kind of cool, I think, is that this hereditary lineage that Daniel being a Jewish man in a foreign kingdom has influence over. At some point, his culture and his practices and his faith are going to be passed down in this ungodly culture, right? And so these guys come and they show up to King Herod, back at the Jesus story, they show up to King Herod and they say, where is the king of the Jews? How do they know to expect him? How do they know to be watching for this star? Well, I believe that Daniel passed down the prophecy from Numbers 24, 17. And it says, I see him, but not now. 
I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike, the, strike down all the Shittites. So they are out there watching for this star. They're looking for it. Like, I want to set the picture clear. They're not just over doing their things, and they're all like, oh, look, a star. That's random. They are actively waiting for it. There's actually even other scriptures that possibly could get to even within the year or two of when to expect the star. And I just didn't want to go into all the math with you guys today. But like, they knew it was coming. It wasn't just like, bing, GPS all of a sudden popped up, right? Like it, they were looking for it. And what's interesting is that, um, and I want to read this how I wrote it. It says, the Magi didn't stumble upon a random star. They were looking at a clue placed by God in the skies to capture their attention. The first lesson we can draw on their experience is this. In an ungodly culture, in what seems an ungodly profession, they were positioned for revelation, right? Like the secular profession of mysticism and stargazing and using the celestial objects to possibly project the future, this, this practice even later in New Testament times, it basically just becomes the same word used for magic in general. Um, but so it doesn't seem like it's very godly, right? but it's actually what puts them in a very sacred position. Long before they started, they, long before these men were even born, the ones that show up at the manger, God knew what he was doing. He spoke into history that a star would appear. He placed it into universe, a clue that they could watch for. He used it, like I said, to capture their attention. And then they saw his star shine through in what was actually at the time, the secular. And as I started pondering about this, I started pondering that literally their professions put them in a position to meet Jesus. I started wondering how many of our professions, our skills, our talents, find us in places that don't look super holy, find us in places where ministry doesn't seem to be happening, but we're actually being positioned for places of sacred moments. Right. Like when we are talking with our coworkers and we're just kind of, you know, doing the water cooler talk or talking about our weekend. Like I've been so blessed even before I got into ministry full time. Like all of a sudden I'd have these moments with my coworkers where I'm like, I'm in sacred space. Like they're sharing their hearts with me. They're sharing their concerns with me. They're telling me this and they're not just telling me this. Yes, I've earned trust with them, but they're also telling me I had this girl. I loved it. I'd come in on Sunday mornings on my way to church. I used to work at Starbucks. Uh, when I was in grad school, and um, I would come in on Sunday mornings, grab my coffee, and Prasita Wallace, they'd be slamming out drinks, and she'd be like, Jessica, you heading to church? Yeah, Prasita, I'm going to church. I'll be in at two o'clock. She goes, pray for me. Prasita, I pray for you all the time. I don't have to do that at church. No, 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 pray for me. Pray for me at church. I got this going on. Like, she would sit there yelling over the bar the prayers that she wanted me to take to the Lord for her that morning. Now, yeah, was there some misunderstanding? She didn't understand that I hit my prayer closet for her on, on a daily basis. Yeah, she didn't get that. But for what she understood is, you know somebody who can do something about the situations in my life. Go talk to them for me. Right? And I was in a very, I mean, Starbucks, guys, very secular job, right? You know, I've, I've had people, and I am absolutely so blessed to get to be here full time. Like it's incredibly so blessed. But even uh, last night, my former boss from the job, I left 
to come here. She texts me happy birthday, which is super kind. And she's asking me, like, how's the church? How are things? Like, is it what you thought it would be and stuff? And I was like, you know, as much as I love it, and I do hear my heart in this, I do. I miss being around people that don't think like me. I miss opportunities that challenge me to think of creative ways to put the light of the world into the conversation. Because it's, it's easy for me to just walk up to you guys and just spit out all the Hobby Lobby good quotes and Jesus, you know, philosophies, and y'all just give me an amen and it sounds great. But the challenge comes when I have people that don't think that way, don't believe that way, and I get to talk to them and, and say that Jesus is a possibility. Now, hear me in this. I understand jobs can be hard. I understand it can be weird, and you, you've, gotta, you've just got to trust the Lord. Is this a safe conversation I can have? You know, is my job going to be on the line if I go there? But we trust God, right? Amen. And I'll say this on this topic, because I think more Christians need to hear it. I needed to hear it when I heard it. We have to do the work to build the bridge of hospitality that bears the weight of truth. Okay. We don't get to just go in there and lay down and say, here are the Ten Commandments, do it. And we have given no care for that person in our lives. We've given no desire to know them as an individual, their gifts, their talents, their passions, their heartaches and heart wounds and how they got there. Right? Like we can't just expect, like, shocker, sinners are gonna sin. Like, like let's let's go in there with that, right? So we build a bridge of hospitality that when those hard conversations have to happen. They can bear the weight of truth. And I would get to have conversations with people because they knew, you know, I, I'll say this too. I will say this. If you work with people, they should know you're a Christian without you having to tell them. Like, I'm just, they should know. They should know the way you carry yourself. Is, as David already says, what you believe of God impacts what you think, what you say, what you do. And they should just know. This is my worldview. This is how I see things. I answer to him. I don't always like it, but I always obey it. Sorry, I shouldn't really cross my fingers, but you know what I mean? Like, like, right? Like, that's our attitude is, is you know, when people want to have conversations, listen, this is my worldview. And this is what God says, and I'm still trying to figure it out. And, you know, I think one of the main things that people get scared about about sharing their faith is what are they, what if they ask me about, like, creationism or, 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 or the, the science behind dinosaurs or, or all these, like, they're not going to ask you that tough stuff. They're not. They're probably going to ask you, how do I love my husband when he's being annoying? How do I get rid of bitterness within me? How do I choose forgiveness? And how do I see that forgiveness is, is unforgiveness is deadly to me? Like those kind of conversations that we can bring in, that we can be positioned professionally for moments of sacred moments that lead us to Jesus in those conversations. And I don't want to miss that these guys were probably pagan. At, you know, maybe they had some mixed quasi-Jewish belief in there, which I believe is like, probably half of our country as well, like some quasi weird Western culture, Christianity, Judeo mix, like they know a little something, right? Yeah, there's a song, it's like this idea that wise men still seek him, right? And it's associated to these wise men. And I believe that when we seek for opportunities, when we are watching for the star, looking for those moments, we will find them. But if we just show up unintentionally, grab our paycheck, think that church is reserved for here and everything else, like we live these, uh, these like TV dinner lives with our little compartments and like we got to shift it into it's like, it's all chicken pot pie, baby. Like it's all mixed in, right? That's why I don't like chicken pot pie. There's peas and carrots in it, but it's all mixed in. I can't do nothing about it. 
The Magi were wise because they gave their gift and their talents, their skills, their profession to position them for worship. They honored God in what seems secular and a very thing that set them apart for something sacred and holy. They worshiped God in their watching and their waiting, and when the opportunity presented itself, they took it. And we can give this same gift when we step into those conversations with our coworkers, when we pray for our coworkers, whether they know it or not. We bring God into every atmosphere that we enter. Every atmosphere you enter. Stop this, like, I just work in such an ungodly place. Are you there? The greater one is within you, and you take him to work. Amen? Don't cower back. We're no victim. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3. So that was the first two verses of what we got to cover. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes and the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea are, no, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will, be, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right. So I got another question. Why is Herod disturbed? More so, why is everybody else disturbed? Like, were they not waiting for the king of the Jews to be born? Isn't that like the whole thing of like the Jewish faith? The guy, the Messiah, he's coming. And then these crazy dudes from Persia just showed up. And they said that he's here. Like, wouldn't they be a little more excited? Well, the reason all of Jerusalem is disturbed is because Herod is disturbed. So we need to understand that Herod the Great is who this historical figure is, not the same Herod that Jesus encounters when he's an adult, okay? Just so you know. So this is his dad. So Herod the Great was a crazy man, okay? He was paranoid and he was jealous. Um, his wife, whom he loved, uh, all scholars agree whom he loved, he had her murdered. He had her grandfather murdered. He had her mother murdered. And he had three of their children murdered out of paranoia from being absurd by, by them. All right. So if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Like if they're like, Herod's upset. We're all possibly the weakest link and about to die, right? Like it's not okay. But what I also wanted to look at is the prophecy that gets said here. So, so the, the Magi, they're, they're looking for the star, but they didn't know the prophecy of where he was supposed to be born. Notice he had to talk to the priest and the, and the Jewish scholars that were there. So they're coming in and they find out more facts once they get to the palace. So in this prophecy, this actual prophecy is found in Micah 2. So the full prophecy says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So in the past weeks, Pastor David has um, told us, and, and we talk about this in our Passover teaching as well, that Bethlehem, where Christ was born, uh, stands for house of bread, right? We, we've got that house of bread. Beth meaning house. Lachayim or lehem is bread, okay? So Jesus was born in the house of bread. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. Everybody go, oh, that's awesome. Okay, yeah. All right. What does Ephrathah mean? Okay, so Ephrathah is actually the name, is the ancient name that predates the name of this region, predates Bethlehem. This is the name of the area before the conquest, before the Israelites came in and took over the promised land. 
And you would think they'd probably want to change the name, but they liked the name too much that they kept calling that region Bethlehem Ephrathah. And in fact, the people who were from this area, they weren't really known as Bethlehemites. They were, they were Ephrathites. Sorry, there's a lot of THs in there. It's hard to say. What does this word mean? This word actually means fruitful abundance. And so I really think it's cool that God, from the depths of antiquity, from way back old, he entered the human story through his incarnation, linking himself with Bethlehem Ephrathah, linking himself with the fruitful abundance, the house of bread. So that's just fun, like fun Bible facts that I just wanted to teach you on that one. So I think that's really cool. So verse seven, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and he asked them the exact time the star will appear. That's going to be important later. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. Notice Herod sent them to Bethlehem and they went on their way. The text never says they went to Bethlehem. So if your brains just went, sorry, like, all right, we're going to, I'm, I'm glad the nativity wasn't a dead on. I'm glad we had like 30,000 angels and shepherds this morning because I was afraid I was like totally going to blow up the kids production this morning. I also put them way at the beginning of the service because I didn't want to be upstage by their awesomeness. Um, no, but yeah, it says that he sent them on their way. Continuing in the verse, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. This is a moving star. That's weird, exactly. And it hung low enough that it was able to distinguish which house to go into. Like we don't get knock, 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 baby. Knock, 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 baby. Like we, they enter the, st- the house that it wants. Like literally the visualization in my head is like, Life 360, anybody? Like, and you got the little, like, the little Jesus tracker. If that illustration didn't float with you, that's fine. That's not for you. But, like, like this star served as the GPS marker on the map for them, and it moved. And I have no idea where they find the child. Okay, I've read more about the wise men than I care to this week. Every argument that says that he was back in Nazareth, every argument that says he was back in Bethlehem, every argument that even says he was in Jerusalem. I don't know what to tell you. I know they found him. Amen. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed with joy. Verse 11, entering the house, not a stable, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So were the Magi present at the nativity? No. Sorry. So when you go home, take all your little porcelain magi. (laughs) No, that's fine. It's fine. No, keep them. Totally. It's totally okay. But they did meet Jesus and they met him at some point after his birth. The reason we place them at the nativity is because the story immediately follows the birth account in, in, um, in Matthew. So what's the timeline here? Well, let's look at a couple of things. So Church tradition celebrates the arrival of the Magi on January 6th, Epiphany. Um, 
I'm going to harp for a minute. There are 12 days of Christmas, my friends. Christmas starts on Christmas Day, and it ends on January 6th. Stop taking your decorations down, okay? Like, <laughs> just saying. Like, like no, for real, I mean, for real, we're not in Christmas time right now. Y'all know that, right? The season we're in right now is not Christmas. It's Advent. It's the getting ready of our hearts to prepare room for a king, right? It's that he is coming. And then on Christmas Day, it starts the 12 days of Christmas, which is more than a song. It's a time period that we celebrate the incarnation that God himself decided to lower and humble himself so much that he put on skin. Like God was willing to take on heartburn, okay? I chose heartburn. There are other bodily things that we could name that like, that, like potentially sore knees, potentially, like whatever it is, like he, he got in human story. Fatigue, sleepiness, headaches. And I know that might be messing with some of y'all because you're like, he's healed and stuff. But script, my scripture tells me that he suffered everything I suffered and he was tempted every way I was tempted. So I think some things may have happened to his body because he was human. That he didn't have to do. Remember, he was God in glory before time. And he said, no, I'm going to put on skin. I'm going to put on flesh. I'm going to grow old up to an age. And so we celebrate during the day, 12 days of Christmas. So please stop taking down your decorations on Christmas Day. Anyway, all right. Despite my personal love of Epiphany, also is the birthday of my theology professor and good friend Carmel. Um, in the reality, they, they probably didn't reach him even by January 6th, okay? Um, most likely, well, let's just talk about it. Okay, so if we consider that they came from Persia, okay? Um, next, is there a map? Cool, cool, cool. All right, cool. So this is um, basically this previous map, but different words on it. So here we go. We have Persia, like I said, Arabia down here. This is our Israel area right here, like that right there, that little dot, if you can see it, that's the Dead Sea. So we're right here. All right, so if they're coming from this area, the direct route would be like, whoop, straight over the Arabia Desert. Anybody seen Lawrence of Arabia? You don't go through the Arabia Desert, okay? So what they did instead is they traveled north up to this area, which is a part of the Silk um, Highway. This is called the Royal Road right up here, this portion. And then they would have cut down, actually go to the next map for me. They would have cut down and connected to the King's Highway and the King's Highway would go down into Egypt. So instead of cutting straight across, right in here, they're gonna come all the way up here and they're gonna loop down to stay on the road. This is actually a trek that is recorded in Ezra. When Ezra um, leaves Persia and returns back after the exile, he and all his family and his mama and them, they all leave and they travel this exact same route to come back. And it, the Bible records this trip has taken about four months. So with the Magi probably being more professional travelers, not traveling with women and children, they might have done it in three, give or take. Um, so let's just put that at Jesus is probably at least three months old at a minimum, if not longer. Because we don't know exactly if the star beamed and appointed the night that he was born or if the star just showed up in time when God wanted to have, there, have them there. Let's talk about what time God wanted to have them there. All right. So we're going to talk about the Luke account real quick. So in Luke 2:24, Luke records after Jesus is born, he says when the 8 days are completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And then when the days of their prayer of 
purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem. They presented him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph gave two turtle doves when they presented Jesus. They did everything following the law. So let's look at the law. Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. When her days of purification are complete, so we're going back to the Old Testament. This is what the law says. When her days of purification are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she is to bring to the priests at the entrance of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for burnt offering and a young and a young pigeon turtle dove for a sin offering. He will present them to the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. She will be clean from her discharge of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether male or female. Did Luke mention a lamb? Okay. I don't think Mary and Joseph are probably wanting to cut a lot of corners here, having just given birth to the creator of the universe. So how did they fulfill everything according to the law? We're going to continue verse 8. But if she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest will make atonement on her behalf and be, and she will be clean. All right, so we know this is 40 days after his birth. We know they did everything according to the law. We know that all they could afford was two turtle doves. I'm thinking they don't have a secret stash of gold that some magi has shown up and given them. Are you with me? So the gold has not showed up yet. Those resources has not, has not arrived to them yet. The timing isn't there. So God has, they're, they're doing everything God is telling them to do, but the clues in the text are telling me that the Magi weren't there in the first 40 days. The clues in the geography are telling me that they were probably there at least three months. Then we go back to the fact that Herod, um, at the end, if you know kind of in the story that Herod figures out that the Magi are not coming back to talk to him, he freaks out and in a very Herod fashion has all the children in the Bethlehem area murdered under the age of two. So it's probably that he like, you know, hedged his bets a little bit, but it's very likely that Magi came to Jesus somewhere between him being three months to nine months, somewhere in there, maybe up to a year old. Herod, Herod covered his grounds, went up to age two. Okay. Are y'all following with me? Am I blowing up your nativities too much? No, we're okay. All right. But here's what I like about this and the timing. So the Magi have been on a journey for a while. They dedicate a valuable time to their search. And it, even though the timeline is not exact, we know that their commitment and their willingness stayed true to find what they sought out for. They set on a mission for the sacred, right? And they didn't stop till they found it. Why did they go to Herod? It's, it's interesting. So they come first to Herod. Did they think that the son was to be born of Herod? Were they, did they go expecting the king of the Jews? So the most natural place to go is the palace. And they get there and they find out this dude's like, uh, what king? What, what's going on, right? They get there, or was, was it even a diplomatic move, right? Persia once conquered this area. And now they're showing up in a big caravan. And 
are they just trying to say like, hey, no threat here. We're just looking for your king. And when Herod realizes it's not him, either way, they arrive at a palace thinking they found exactly what they're looking for. And all they found was the next step in their journey. Like they had a promise that then got there and was delayed. And in that, my heart goes, oh, I have some of those. Like I have things where I have a vision an expectation, something I think God's promised me. And I get to where I think the arrival, I get to where I think the destination is going to be. And all God says, now go here instead. <laughs> right. There's, and there's an opportunity here for discouragement, right? There's an opportunity that in, in delaying the reception of the promise, I would get discouraged, but God doesn't leave them hanging. It says that even as they gave the gift of their time, God showed back up with the star saying, no, 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 I'm still in this story. Like we're still journeying on this together. Like when we give our time to the Lord, which is the next gift that they gave, right? They gave their time. They stopped what they did and they went and sought him. We don't get that time back. But what we do get is encouragement along the way to remember to keep going. We find little moments of stars. We find little moments of this is worth it. And we, we yes, do we run into discouragement? Do we get to palaces and sometimes find madmen there? Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. But we continue on our way. And the scripture says in verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And they remember the prize is the Messiah. Like when we spend our time seeking him, thinking we're going to arrive at some ministry, some destination, some big thing, some dream. We got to remember the destination isn't the prize. Jesus is the prize. Paul writes in Philippians 3.13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself as having taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, reaching toward what's ahead, I pursue my goal and the prize. I just, I want to encourage people that have a promise in their heart, that are, have a, a prophecy even spoken over them or just something you feel like God's told you, like to continue to pursue, to continue to go after him and remember that like even in, in whatever that final destination, maybe whatever the picture is, like pursuing it with Jesus is that he is the prize. And journeying with him is that he is the prize and look for moments of encouragement along the way. It's something... Um, it's something they teach us when you start going, in, especially into youth ministry, but I think this is applicable to all ministry. It's, it's called the long game, right? We, we step into youth ministry, and, and for a lot of us that, like, work with students for six, seven, eight, nine years, we may never see that moment that it clicks for our students. Like, I pray we do, but what I remember and what I pray into are the Facebook messages of, of kids that were in my student ministry way back when raising up their kids in the things of the Lord. And I was like, at some point, I may not have been there, but at some point they got it. At some point, and God has just told this to my heart, at some point they go, oh, that's what that girl when I was 14 year old was talking about. Right? The, those things where we go, it's worth it. And I didn't get to see the moment. I didn't get to see exactly what it looks like at some altar and, you know, whatever it may be. But I see them serving the Lord now, or I see them, and it's like, it's the long haul. That the time that I gave, knowing that it's never wasted on those things. So I just I encourage your heart, knowing that, that the time may, timeline may not line up like you want, but to continue on your journey as the wise men did. All right, super fast now. Verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshiped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. In the final scene, the Magi arrive at a house, not a stable. Again, I don't know where the house was, Bethlehem, Nazareth, maybe. But they give him what, in all of this, outside of probably Mary's body, is the first tangible gift that we have amongst these characters. And this, these gifts were both practical and these gifts were prophetic. Looking at the practical is one of my favorite aspects on this. God is not a deadbeat dad. He paid child support for his kid, all right? These gifts, uh, I'm sorry if that like makes you sit weird, but like these gifts showed up at some point after they've bought, after they've done what they needed to do in the temple, somewhere in between that moment and them needing to get up in the middle of the night and go to Egypt in fear of, uh, not even in fear, but in protection of Jesus's life. We know later on in scripture that uh, Joseph is warned in a dream to get up. Herod is going to come after and seek the child to kill him. So they get up in the night. Again, they are poor people. Just leaving town, much less leaving a country and going to a foreign land without family, without community, they would not have been able to pay for that unless they just happen to have these three dudes. Well, there weren't three of them. These guys show up. Sorry, there weren't three of them, okay? Like, calm down. All right, so these guys show up and hand them a bunch of gold, right? So God pays child support. Like, God provides for his kids. When he calls you to do something, he provides for it financially to happen. Like, he does it right here with Jesus, is that what I wanted to say about that? Basically, yeah. Because, like, here's the thing, and this is what I've started to understand, and I'm just going to say it. Every dollar belongs to the Lord. Every dollar in your bank account and every dollar in my bank account belongs to the Lord. And when I let him, I get the blessing of helping to push those dollars into other people's bank accounts. And sometimes he pushes those dollars into my bank accounts. So that means that someday God's going to give me a call and you're going to pay for it. And guess what? Someday God's going to give you a call and I'm going to pay for it. And that's just how the kingdom works. And there's such a blessing in that. These wise men that come from a pagan culture paid for the king of the universe to get to safety. Could God have sent down chariots and destroyed Herod? Yep. But I think we needed to see a tangible moment where money and resources were used to protect, persevere, and push forward the kingdom. From the beginning. But also these gifts were prophetic. And I'll touch on these three real quick because I don't have a lot of time. Gold, frank, gold frankincense, and myrrh. Gold represented Jesus as king. Right? I don't have to go into a lot of teaching on that. We know that gold is associated with pure and, and very valuable and costly because Jesus is king. Frankincense was an incense used in the temple, and it was burned before the Lord day and night. It was also mixed in with the anointing oil to consecrate and sacred, make things sacred. It became a symbol of prayer, and it represents Jesus as our high priest, right? Always making intercession for us. He is our representation. What is a priest? It is the person who represents God to man and man to God. And scripture says, Jesus does that for us. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen the father. Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of the father. And so this frankincense that was given at that time was to represent he is our high priest. And then myrrh is an incense that is used in, in anointing both prophets. It was mixed also with the anointing oil to, to anoint prophets, but it also was used to anoint 
the dead. And in this, this gift of myrrh looked ahead to Jesus being the ultimate prophet that would someday die. Right? It looked at, at his birth, it looked towards his death, towards his mission that in his death, he would conquer both sin and the grave and give us his life. Did these magi have any idea that they were given some super prophetic gifts that, of this little baby? Heck, no. But when we give what we have, tangible gifts, and we put them at the feet of Jesus, where Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. God takes those things, mixes them up in his godness, and prophetically uses them to push forward his things. Right? It's, it's, it's crazy kingdom math. It multiplies. It becomes so much bigger than us. The, the gifts that the Magi's gave, right? They gave their talent. They gave their time. They gave their resources. We can do all of that. And we don't have to get on a camel and go to the, to the royal road and ride down to do it. Like we can do it every day. And we show where our heart is by putting our treasures there. Is your heart for seeing the kingdom advance? Then are you putting it into the local church? Are you putting it into local outreaches? Is your heart for seeing the nations reach for the gospel? Then are you putting it in the hands of missionaries that are willing to go? Is your heart for seeing the, the poor serve? Then are you putting it there? Like where our treasures are, there our heart is also. These wise men prove that to us. I love that they're called wise men because what they end up doing was some of the greatest wisdom that they had no idea. They had no idea that they would be encapsulated for all time, inspiring through hope and encouragement us to do the same for Jesus. The final destination of all these gifts that we have to bring that we've been talking about for weeks, they're not always transparent. How God's going to use them, how God's going to use these envelopes that you're giving out and you're putting into people's hands, we don't know where that's going to land, right? But the purpose remains clear that when given in worship to the King of Kings, talents position us, time will find encouragement, and our resources fuel the call to propel the kingdom. Amen? And it all brings about the purposes of God. So I just want to encourage us this morning in this story to look a little deeper. Don't get, don't get mixed up with just three little boxes that these guys show up with, and there's some things. Like there's a lot going into the story that reflects our own. And we're all in different places on our journey. Some people may find themselves already at the feet of Jesus. Some of us may still find ourselves in Babylon looking for some sign to even believe that any of this is real. But along that way, God's with all of us. God's on that path and God is working. So I am going to be done because we are out of time. Um, but... <laughs>